0: morning, everyone. My name is Will, one of the pastors here at New Life Press. And uh, we are beginning a new series in the book of Revelation. And uh, before I give the scripture reading, I want to offer a couple of thoughts as to why we're going to consider uh, the last ending part of the book of Revelation. Because one of the challenges that we have been facing uh, for a couple of years now, obviously, is really trying to get the people uh, restored and rebuilt in the gospel and instill within the hearts of people a sense of hope, and one of the best ways to do this is to give, give you a picture of a real historical grounded hope in terms of the end times. And one of the challenges that you'll face in life is to figure out what sort of decisions, what sort of path should you choose and take. And I often find, oftentimes find myself in meetings saying this, begin with the end in mind. Because if you can see the end, then you can make your decisions and have a level of security and a level of hope because you know what the end of the story is. And so we're going to begin this series by looking at Revelations 19 towards the end, because it captures the victory and the hope and the end story of not only the church, but your life and mine. So if you're able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to begin in Revelations 19. It's a picture of glory, a picture of worship. It's a picture of praise. And I'm going to read from verses 1 to verse 10. This is God's Word. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of the servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, who you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult, and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, Bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And this is God's word. Please take your seats at this time. Well, like I said, begin with the end in mind, and I know that some of us in this room, when you watch a movie or a series, whether it's a mystery, maybe it's a horror film, maybe it's just a romance, some of you like to know the ending. So you look it up, you find the ending of the story on Wikipedia, you just want to know the ending, and then you can look at that story in light of the conclusion of the story. And so in some ways, that's what we're trying to do here, as I just mentioned. We look at the end, and Revelation gives us the ending to the biblical story of Revelation. It's a lot about wartime. It's about defeating evil and God's enemies. It's about having a sense of victory, a sense of hope and bliss that for people in Jesus will be brought home to heaven. And you have that hope that could bear some truth and help even in the situations that we find ourselves today. In other words, Revelation doesn't just end the story of the Bible. It ends the story of you and me. It's a picture of our destiny. And I wanna share a couple of thoughts about the book of Revelation before we look specifically into this passage because there are commentators that say Revelation could be the hardest book in the Bible to understand. So I'm gonna to try to attempt to give you a baseline perspective on the book of Revelation so you could understand how to read the verses and glean as much as you can. But one professor by the name of Dr. Poitras has said this about Revelation. At the end of the day, Revelation is a picture book and not a puzzle book. And when we begin to get frustrated with Revelation, it's because we view it as a puzzle book and not a picture book. And what he means is this: If you're so much uh, give so much energy to figuring out details such as uh, Revelation 13:2, what do the bear's feet mean, or all these different numbers that are important? But if you ignore the bigger picture, then you're going to run into trouble. Because Revelation is not a puzzle book where you figure out where do the barefoot fit, where are the numbers here fit, where are the cycles up here fit, why are there so many heads on this beast compared to this beast. Then you're never going to figure out the main point of Revelation because it's a picture book, a vision. And in this picture, God is sent center of Revelation, And surrounded all around God are going to be his enemies that he defeats in his son Jesus. So Vern Poitras, he goes on and explains really the heart of Revelation as he talks about a time he taught the book of Revelations to children's ministry at his church. And this is what he said. He said to his class, his, his little kids at his church, I want you to read the book of Revelation. And if you're too young to read it, have your parents read it for you. And if they can't read it, try to figure out a Bible study teacher to help you to understand it. And I think he says, I think he's telling these little kids, I think you can understand Revelation better than your parents. And then a boy about 12 years old came up to him afterwards and says, I know exactly what you mean. A little while ago, I read Revelation and I felt that I understood it. 12 year old kid. And he says, Praise the Lord. He says, That was the essence and the heart of it. And he says, That's the main point of the book of Revelations. Praise the Lord. And he says, I read it like it was a fantasy. Except I knew that it was true. And Dr. Poitras responds, that's precisely correct. Praise the Lord is essentially the heart of Revelation. That's the picture book. For his glory and his power and the hope that it gives you. God rules history. He'll bring it into consummation in son Jesus. And we read this story with that main point in mind. And if you do and understand the picture of Revelation, then you'll get the heart of the gospel for you here today. Now, if you had to summarize the theme of Revelation, it could be described in different ways. One of the ways is simply, Christ reigns, even now. He rules the world. Or another way to think about it is that Revelation is talking about Jesus wins. Or some people like to get more sophisticated and say, well, Revelation is really an eschatological book, a book about the end times. It's apocalyptic. And if you think along those lines, you could also understand it this way. What Revelation's main point is this. In the end, you will win, they will lose, hang in there. He's writing to churches that are being martyred and they're suffering. And the main point of Revelation is to give you this picture where the application is to tell you, you will win, they will lose, hang in there when they say they will lose, it's not talking about other cultures or nations and holy war. It's talking about Satan, the principalities and powers of the air, talking about your sin, talking about the brokenness of this world. And if you hold on to Jesus because he holds on to you, you will win. They will lose. Hang in there. And so when we begin this series with that picture in mind that Jesus reigns and Christ wins and that we'll win if we hold on to Jesus, we begin our passage in our series with this passage that gives us a picture. And the first picture that we get here in Revelation 19, 1-10 is going to be about a wedding celebration. It's a wedding feast. It's a picture of a perfect bridegroom reigning in power. It's a picture of a bride, a picture of a, an adulterous relationship with a prostitute. And so I want to look at this picture as you get a glimpse of the victory we have in Jesus, basically from three perspectives of a wedding. One, we're going to consider a prostitute. Secondly, we'll look at Jesus' bride. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the groom, the bridegroom. So we'll look first at the prostitute, secondly at the bride, and the third at the groom. So let's look at this first, the prostitute. Verse 1 says this, just in the beginning. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of the great multitude in heaven. That's how it begins chapter 19, after this. And that word of this in verse one is referring to chapter 18 and all the events that took place in 18 in this holy war. And in chapter 18, you basically have the destruction and the defeat of a city called Babylon. Babylon represents the world. Babylon is not one nation. Babylon represents a society, a system, a world without God, a depraved culture. Babylon is a world of deception a world of corruption. Babylon is manipulation. Babylon is the world of idolatry. Babylon represents the heart of man and a community of people and a culture that is godless. And in verse 1, it begins with praise and says that after God defeats Babylon and ushers in peace and prosperity, heaven celebrates. They say, hallelujah. He frees his people, he purifies the world, and encourages the Christians because it says, you are right all along, your faith in Jesus proved to be right, because God's going to judge the world and he's going to destroy Babylon. Verse 2, the worlds of Babylon is metaphorically referred to as the great prostitute. So verse 2 says this, For his judgments are true and just, for he has just judged the great prostitute. He corrupted the earth with her, her immorality and has avenged on her, the blood of his servants. Now, why in the world would it be calling essentially the anti-God world, the godless world, a prostitute, a spiritual adulterer? What does that really mean? Well, one helpful book to help you get an understanding of this is a, a pastor, or actually more of an academic, Brian Rosner. I think he's a PCA elder. He traces three major themes in the Bible in terms of what does sin mean. Three major metaphors. And quickly, he says, the first major category of sin are what he calls the obey idols. This is the power metaphor. It's the political metaphor. And it says, God should be your lord and master. God should be your king. But whatever we trust more, we also serve. So if we trust something more than God, we commit a spiritual sin. The second category of sins in the Bible, according to Rosner, is what he calls the trust idols. And he says, these are really the religious metaphor, your savior. So God should be our savior, but if we look towards other idols like achievement, financial prosperity to give us more peace and security, then we also commit sin. And then the third major category in the Bible with respect to sin is going to be the love idol. This is the marriage metaphor. God should be our true spouse, but when we love or delight in something more than God, then we commit spiritual adultery, we commit spiritual prostitution. So you have these obey idols, then you have trust idols, and then you have love idols. It shows that God is also our king, he's our master, and our trust idol is that he's our savior, and the love idol says he's basically uh, supposed to be your proper spouse, your lover. So it means this. God isn't just your king, so that when you break the law, you sin. God isn't just your savior, so that when you trust in other things for peace and security, you sin. The third category means that God is also your bridegroom. So that if you love and delight in things more than God, then you also sin. Because God just isn't your king. He's just not going to be your savior. It's saying here, God is your lover. He's a lover of your soul. He's your bridegroom. He's your, he's your husband. And by the way, that's why the, the Bible sort of transcends culture, because you know, it'll address both men and women and say that uh, you are sons of God. And some people say, you know, why is this so patriarchal? We can't get into it, but it's a very anti cultural, antithetical approach to say that both men and women are sons of God. But on the flip side, it says to men and women, you're the bride of Christ. And so it's something that transcends our culture, but that's the essence of what it means to be a spiritual adulterer. Babylon delighted and found her husband in seduction, and power, in money. Babylon represents human society without God in all its violence, in its oppression, in all its corruption. That human society without God, all that awful stuff that you're going to read in Revelations 18 and 19, all that cruelty, the violence, the injustice, in verse 2 of chapter 19, the Bible is saying that's adultery. They prostituted themselves out. And in fact, all of human sin on one level is described as spiritual adultery. You're called to love Jesus as your husband but we delight in things more than Jesus. And it introduces one of the great themes of the Bible. And so what does this mean, friends? It means that if you're in Jesus, you are the bride. But whenever you delight and love something more than Jesus, which in our idolatrous hearts happens all the time, you're cheating on your husband. As harsh and as heavy as that sounds, that's what the Bible says about sin. Whenever you delight in something more, whenever you find happiness in terms of your identity and your foundation more than God, you're committing spiritual adultery, you're prostituting yourself out, that you're cheating on your husband. And I know it's hard to figure that out. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy things in this world. You can, and they're good. But if you find more joy and delight in something in this world, more than your relationship in Jesus Christ, then what the Bible in verse 2 is trying to tell you is that you committed a spiritual adulterous act. So if you delight more in money, or in your education, in your resume, if you delight even more in your family than you do in God, which are things that you got to wrestle with, and the Bible is saying you have one aspect in which Jesus is no longer the love of your soul. And that's the first thing we learn about this, that apart from God, in our sin, that we oftentimes act as a spiritual adulterer. But secondly, it also shows us that in Jesus Christ we are the bride of Jesus. So read with me verses seven to eight. It says, "Let us rejoice, Mary. This is pray. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with the fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." Now weddings are occasions for celebration. They're occasions for joy. They're symbols of glory. Uh, It's a picture of Jesus in the church. And that's why it begins here in verse 6 with the word hallelujah, which is basically a translation of the Hebrew that says praise the Lord or praise Yahweh. Hallelujah means praise, and Yah is a conjunction for Yahweh. So hallelujah means praise God. So they're praising God because God defeated Babylon, but they're praising God in verse 6. Hallelujah, let let us rejoice and give glory because we're at a wedding, a marriage of the Lamb. It says in verse 8, the bride has made herself ready. Now, if you've ever seen movies, and even if you're not married, I think you have a sense of all the work that goes in for the bride to get ready on her wedding day. She has to figure out everything about her to beautify herself for a great occasion as her wedding. And here, it's no different. It's saying that the church of Jesus Christ, you and me, we have to get ready. The bride has made herself ready in verse 8. She has her wedding dress on, it's fine linen, it's pure, and this fine linen, later on, is referred to as good and righteous deeds. So when it's talking about the fine linen and the wedding dress, obviously it's not talking about clothes. It's saying that God gives you fine linen, and because of this, you have righteous deeds. Actually, the way you prepare yourself is to live a holy life, to live righteously, to live in consistency with who God is and His holiness. That's sort of, the implication of what we're trying to get here. There's a wedding feast, there's a marriage, God gives you the dress, and then you live according to who you are through righteous deeds. That's how you prepare yourself. There's a deeper intimacy, a deeper union. You only love God and you live righteously before him. Your righteous acts, your good works, in other words, is how you prepare yourself to be the perfect bride when Jesus Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb, comes back to get you. Now, for those of us who are married, and for those of us who are engaged, or those of us who uh, think they will get married down the road, I actually think that probably no bride would let the bridegroom and your fiancé pick your wedding dress. Maybe you'll get his opinion, but we all know how it is. You know, The bride comes up, tries to dress on, asks her fiancé, what do you think, maybe if you do that, and you know, maybe you give your opinion, but in reality... Now, the husband doesn't have too much say on the, on the dress. It's really just, the, it's just whatever she likes and what she thinks and her bridesmaids and friends think look good. No one will let the bridegroom pick the dress. The only wedding in which the bridegroom picks the dress for the bride is the wedding that we're reading in here. Because in verse 8 it says, I gave you your linen. I gave it to you. That's what it's trying to say. I granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. You know, it's the only wedding in which the bridegroom gives a clothes. Do you know why? Because fine linen, bright and pure, is a righteousness, is holiness. It represents a new identity. It represents a cleaning. It represents grace. It represents a guilt that's washed away, your sin that's washed away. It represents all the glories and the power and the grace of the gospel given to you. So it's a very subtle bit saying that the bride gets the clothes, From her husband. I gave you the linen. I'm going to clothe you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ for you. And out of this, to prepare yourself, live consistently with your wedding dress. Live righteously with righteous deeds and good acts. No more shame and guilt, all washed away, grace that cleanses you, makes you white, bright and pure, and empowers good deeds of the saints. Now, friends, let's dig a little bit deeper into this. What this implies in terms of having linen, bright, and pure, and being married to the lamb, it means total and comprehensive vulnerability and openness. That's what a marriage really is, even if you think about it on a human level. You know, maybe I could illustrate it this way. I started watching this show on Apple TV called The Morning Show, and it's a very dense and heavy, dramatic series. It's all about you know, systems and cultures of sexual oppression and Uh, people in power and how they victimize people under them so it's a, a very complicated show but very powerful but the main character one of the main characters played by Jennifer Aniston she plays this morning show TV host she's nationally known she's famous she's rich her character's name is Alex and then shortly into the series you realize that although she's married and has one daughter the marriage is falling apart it's only on paper in which her and her husband are married because she's nationally known. It's all about the ratings and PR, and she needs to retain her reputation, so she has to pretend like she's married because she's the morning show host for America, so she has to maintain a marriage, but we realize it's only on paper and it wasn't reality because they don't live with each other. They actually engage in flirtatious behavior and physical activity with people outside the marriage, so their hearts are somewhere else, but on paper, they're actually still married. If you ever see a relationship like that, you're saying, that's not a real marriage. Yeah, sure, legally on the document, it says husband and wife, but you're saying, that's not real marriage. You know why? Because it's only legally married, but they're not functionally married. It's only legal, and by name they're married, but not in reality, because they're not sharing their hearts, they're not crying together, they're not laughing together, they're not making decisions together, they're not side-by-side looking at a destiny, going down the same path together. That's a real marriage, not what they're trying to do here. That's a farce. That's a hypocritical marriage. And so that's what it's trying to say as the bride. It's not that God just gives you the fine linen, the dress to wear, so that you have a legal marriage, but also it's saying there's righteous deeds, which means you have a real, organic, functional marriage. You know, and you're thinking, well, I don't do that, according to the morning show. That's not how I am. But think about it. We probably do that a lot more than we think or like to recognize. You know, you come to church. And there's something formal and legal about it. You worship God. You say, you mean everything to me. I love you more than anything else. God, you are the one for me. And right the next moment when you leave, it's almost as if your heart loves other things more than God. So in some ways, we do this sort of thing all the time where legally we say that we're married to Jesus. But functionally, we live our lives in a way that shows something different. And we're not preparing ourselves as a bride. We've been given the righteousness of Christ, fine linen, white clothes. We're legally married, and then we're empowered. We're empowered to do this, transformed to do this for righteous deeds. In other words, some of us may have a mechanical approach to God where we go through the emotions and go through the habits and go through the application of what a Christian is supposed to do, but in reality, we don't have an organic, vitally connected relationship with jesus it doesn't make any difference with your work your recreation how you engage in social media how you talk about other people how you use your money it doesn't show actually righteous deeds and so in some ways you're just like the characters from the morning show let's just put it together for the public to know but in reality my heart is somewhere else i'm legally married but my righteous deeds reflect that i'm in my heart emotionally married to something else And if that's the case, then you're not living according to what the bride calls you to be. Complete and total vulnerability and openness. And that means that when you're married to Jesus, everything is shared with him. You can't just say, Jesus is my husband, so you'll get my worship and my words, but you're not going to get my money. No, everything is shared with Jesus. Jesus, as the bridegroom, gets to tell you how to use everything in your life. And you can say, well, okay, Jesus, you can have my money, but no, you're not going to have my body. Or you could say, Jesus, you can have my body, but no, you're not going to have my career. Jesus, you can have uh, my houses, but you're not going to be able to get my time. But that doesn't work that way. If you're going to be the bride of Jesus, he clothed you. He gave it to you. That's grace. He clothed you in white linen, and then he empowered you. Prepare yourself for the righteous deeds. Total vulnerability, total openness, total allegiance, total unity and community with Jesus as your husband, every area of your life is given over to Christ and the marriage supper of the lamb. So we looked at what it means to be a spiritual adulterer, a prostitute. We looked at what the bride is supposed to be. But last but not least, let's consider the bridegroom. Now, some of us may have daydreamed what the ideal husband or bridegroom could be. And you may be thinking, what sort of clothes should the bridegroom uh, at his wedding day, what should he wear? So it could be a white tie event, it could be a black tie event, Maybe it's a traditional tux, maybe you want something edgier with jeans and a t-shirt, maybe something where it's more casual and tropical, maybe it's a tan suit with a white shirt without a tie, who knows what it's going to be. But some of us probably thought about what could this bridegroom look like. And it also depends upon the season, doesn't it? If it's in the spring or in the fall or in the winter, it all depends on the season and the weather. But you know what? The picture of the perfect bridegroom given to us in Revelation 19, do you know what he's wearing? He's a lamb. He's not wearing a top-line designer tuxedo or designer suit. You know, he's not trying to be hipster and edgy so he could wear torn-up jeans and, like, wear a blazer over a T-shirt. The picture-perfect bridegroom in Revelations, in verse 7, he comes as a lamb. The bridegroom who gets all the glory and receives all the praise is a dying bridegroom. That's why he's a lamb. This bridegroom is perfect, not because he's wearing the perfect clothes, but because he comes as a sacrifice. The perfect bridegroom is a dying bridegroom. The perfect bridegroom is a sacrificial one. The lamb that was slaughtered once for all to cleanse you and forgive you, to wash away your guilt. See, one thing about Old Testament marriages were that they were arranged, and the daughter and the son were arranged and typically you have a a, a sort of a ceremony and a process, and then... Uh, the guy's family would give a dowry or basically pay a price to the girl's family as an act of honor. So there's a payment to be made. So it was arranged, and then there's a payment made from the guy's family to the girl's family. That's how it was in the Old Testament days. And in some ways, the picture of this marriage captures that Old Testament custom because in some level, it was an arranged marriage, but it was one-sided, because Jesus chose you. He elected you before eternity. And in some ways, there was a dowry, there was a payment from the husband's family to the bride, and that payment wasn't shekels or money, the payment was the blood of Jesus. That's how the marriage, so this is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament marriage. In some ways, you think about it, in Christ, the bride was chosen from eternity. It was arranged. And throughout the Old Testament, the wedding was always announced, no, this Messiah is coming. Jesus is coming. There's someone that's going to come. It was always announced. The prophets declared it. And next, the Son of God finally comes in flesh and blood, and he came down in his name of Jesus. Then the price and the dowry is paid upon the cross. Jesus shed his blood for his bride to cleanse her and clothe her in white linen that's pure and bright. And after some time, Jesus will come back again as the bridegroom returns. And then you yeah, have the final celebration, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It shows us that God's grace is unmerited. That his love is unmerited. His love comes to us first and then changes us. See, don't miss the profound point of this when it says the bridegroom comes as a lamb and he clothes you. This is what it means. God's love is so different from you and me. Do you know why? How do you love things in this world if you're honest? How do you love people and love things? Well, Beautiful person walks into the room, and then you respond, I'm in love. Maybe you're shopping for a new dress. You see a wonderful dress that fits everything you want. I'm in love. Shopping for a new car with the right color and all the amenities that you want, I just fell in love. In other words, here's the order of how you and I love and how the world loves. Beauty first, love second. But God's love is completely different. God's love is this. Love first, beauty second. Our love is reactionary. Our love is secondary. Our love responds. There's something attractive and beautiful first, and then we respond to that beauty. God's love works differently. He sees things that are are ugly. He sees things that are unattractive, things that are unholy, things that are evil and unjust. And what does he do? He loves them perfectly. The world says beauty first, love second. Gospel says Love first, beauty second. Well, to say in words that are way more eloquent than me, the great reformer in the theology of the cross, Martin Luther, has said this to capture the same point. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being, is created, responds, exists through that which is pleasing to it. In other words, we find that we love things because it's brought into being when something's already beautiful, god sees sinners like you and me and in some ways we're the prostitute we're not attractive but he loves us perfectly anyways and then he transforms us and changes us see our love is going to be responsive god's love is transformative our love will be secondary god's love is primary our love will be something that is uh, comes into being as a result god's love is what transforms you to be a result of holiness you see how it's completely different Every other religion, every other philosophical system, every other approach to life basically approaches love in the way the world does. It says you have to make yourself lovable. Every other religion says make yourself beautiful enough, good enough to be accepted. Christianity and the gospel is the only religion that says you're never going to make yourself beautiful enough. You're already in your sin and rebellion too ugly. You're unattractive. You can never make yourself good enough, lovable enough, beautiful enough to be accepted. God has to love you first to make you that in his own standards and eyes. He makes you beautiful as he transforms you. The marriage supper of the lamb and the way that he beautifies you, the way he demonstrates his love to you is by sending his son Jesus, not wearing a designer tuxedo, but coming in as a sacrificial lamb, to coming in blood, to coming in death, to coming in sacrifice. And that's the perfect bridegroom. And by the way, if you had a marriage seminar, that's what you got to look in a husband. Not his purchasing power only, not in terms of his looks or his height or how, or, you know, how uh, prestigious his background education is. All those things are important, but as a side note, sisters, when you're looking for someone to date and to marry, it has to be someone who's a lamb. He lays down his life for other people, who sacrifices. Now, Ed Clowney, uh, he was a, a pastor, a biblical theological preacher, um, in a, when he was preaching on John chapter 2, he, uh, which is the wedding at, wedding at Cana, he gave this wonderful insight into the bridegroom of Jesus. And he says, you "No, know, in John chapter 2, Jesus is sitting in the midst of a wedding celebration, it's in the middle of all this joy, and he's thinking about going to the cross. Everybody else is happy, Jesus is sad. And Clowney says this, Jesus sits in the middle of all that joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so you can sit in the midst of the world's sorrow and sip on the coming joy. Because there's a wedding, everybody's celebrating, but Jesus is in this wedding, and he's thinking about the future, and he's looking towards the cross, and there's a sorrow for the sin and injustice of this world. There's a sorrow that he has a human saying, I'm about to die on the cross, the most excruciating death the world has ever seen. So in the midst of joy, he's sitting in sorrow. But he does this so that when he dies on the cross and comes as your bridegroom, as a sacrificial lamb in a broken, fallen world today, we can sit in sorrow, but we look forward and we can sip on joy. Because we have a picture book that shows us what our future is, where our hope lies. And that's why throughout this 10 verses in chapter 19, it's actually a celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb. He says, hallelujah, four times. Praise Yahweh four times. Let us exalt in him, give him all the glory, and rejoice. Well, why do they sing hallelujah? Well, because God shows his perfect judgment, and he kills off Babylon. We say hallelujah because we see that his punishment and his judgment is perfect and forever. Vindicates his believers. He says hallelujah in verses six because he says there's a wedding celebration. And you know what? Sometimes I know when there's a wedding, you're wondering am I going to be on that invite list? Some weddings are a little bit exclusive. Am I going to be on that invite list? Am I going to get an invite? You know what? Even in this wedding here, the greatest, most joyous celebration of any wedding, the marriage of the church and Jesus Christ as a sacrificial lamb, there's a VIP list. In some level, there's a VIP list. Everyone's called by the gospel, but it's only those people who actually accept the invite in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the invitation in some level is given to the world across the globe. The proclamation of the gospel is saying, you want to be part of the greatest wedding, the greatest celebration? Here's your invite. Come and believe in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins, the the lamb that was slain. If you confess yourself as a sinner and embrace Jesus Christ as your savior, then and only then, if you accept that invite, you get to come to the greatest and most glorious wedding that the world has yet to see. There's no other wedding that's going to be greater and bigger than this one. And so I pray that when marriage uh, marriage of the Lamb and Jesus Christ comes back, for those of us here and those of us live streaming, I pray that you'll accept this invitation. I pray that you'll be there at the celebration, celebrating with one another, as we see the perfect bridegroom coming to take us back home. Friends, let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray at this time. Lord, we thank you so much for the grace that we have received, that you have given us our wedding dress. You have given us our clothes, linen, white and pure, bright, holy. You wash away all our sin. You wash away and wipe away all the guilt. Because Jesus Christ comes as a lamb sacrificing and dying, empowering, cleansing. We thank you, Lord, that we can look to Jesus. And we could celebrate our union with him. We confess that oftentimes in our sin we commit spiritual adultery, but you are the everlasting, forgiving husband who always takes an adulterous wife back. We thank you for that truth and that gospel-centric, empowering hope given to us, and we pray all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen.